Thank you for listening to Devoted. We meet every week on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. at Calvary Chapel, East Anaheim. Yeah, so if you have your... Tomorrow morning, it starts at 8.30 a.m. So 8.30 in the morning, yes. Oh, there's one other announcement I was supposed to give. They're having an event here on... I believe it's March 24th. Yeah, it's March 24th, and it's for uh, couples, married couples with kids at the church. Anyways, they're looking for people that would uh, want to come and, well, not really volunteer, because it's paid, they'll pay you, uh, to help watch the kids, you know, to do the child care for this event. Um, so if you're interested in that, talk to me, and I'll put you in contact with Haley, and uh, make sure we that you have everything that you need to do to be able to do that. There's a few things to be working with the kids that you have to do to kind of get approved for that. Um, so, but if you can say you want it, you're free that morning or that time. Uh, yeah, they would love to have you. March 24th. Um, yeah, we could make sure you uh, get that stuff done. All right, so if you have your Bibles, open to John chapter 4. We're going to finish our study from last week on the topic of worship. We'll go ahead and read the verses, uh, and then I'll go ahead and pray for us. Starting in verse 19, it says, The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is of the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. So, Father God, we want to do just that. We want to worship you in spirit and in truth tonight, Lord. So come and, and, uh, and be with us. We believe that the gift of prophecy is still active and working in your church, Lord. And so I pray that you would prophesy, that you would speak tonight, that you would speak words of edification, exhortation, and comfort to your people. I pray that you would give me a filling of your spirit and that you would just speak, that you would have your way tonight, Lord. I've prepared stuff that I think you want me to say, but I pray that you would have my tongue, your words would be spoken, your will would be done, and your son would be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So here Jesus says to the woman, hey, basically you worship in ignorance, right? She's asking, do we worship on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, or in Jerusalem. And he's like, you, don't, you worship what you don't know. You're worshiping ignorance, right? Uh, for salvation is, is, is from the Jews, right? To, to worship is from the, the Jews, from the revelation of God to the Jews. And then he says, but there'll come a time where you'll neither worship on this mountain nor in that mountain, but you'll worship God and in truth. And that's the time that we're living in. That's the time after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus after the veil was torn. And now we all have access to the Father, and we're able to worship God in spirit and in truth. And so tonight we're going to talk about what that means, what exactly it looks like to worship in spirit 
true. Last week, we started this study on worship, uh, but the topic is just simply too big to cover it all in one week. Even covering it in two weeks is quite the task. And for an example of just how big this subject is, I want you guys to flip over your outline and just look at how much Minister Divines wrote about worship. Now, out of the, this is the 21st uh, article or, or precept that we've studied going through this confession, and this is by far the longest yet. They've had more to say on how we are to worship and what genuine worship looks like than any other doctrine or practice that we covered. Now, I mentioned last week that the Bible is essentially a worship book. The Bible, first and foremost, tells us who God is and then who we are in light of that. But all throughout the Bible, we're seeing how, what genuine worship looks like, what kind of worship the Lord accepts, what kind of worship he doesn't accept. And we know not all worship is created equal. You don't have to get very far in the Bible to figure that out. In the very first, fourth, in the fourth chapter of the Bible, we see that God accepts some worship and some worship that he doesn't. Right? Abel offered a sacrifice. He offered worship to God that was acceptable. And Cain did not. So not all worship is equal in God's eyes. But there's many places we could go in the scriptures to be informed about what worship looks like. You literally find it in almost every single page of the Bible. This term worship, it comes from the old English word that basically is worship, right? It's to ascribe worth to someone or something, usually to a deity, right? So when we worship God, we're ascribing worth to God, to the creator of the universe. One Bible dictionary I looked up defined worship this way, the response of the creature to the eternal, right? And, and that's really what worship is. It's our response to the eternal creator. Thomas Carlyle said, worship is transcendent wonder. You know, John Calvin, during the Protestant Reformation, he said that the church's biggest need for reform was in the area of worship. And the more I think about it, I affirm that the truth, that truth is still true today. We today, especially in the West, are far from what the Bible describes as worship. I'm sure we've all had this experience where we're reading the book of Acts, and we think something like, wow, like the church today looks nothing like the church in the book of Acts, like the early church. Like there's something that's happened in this 2,000 years, right? And, and largely, we aren't worshiping <laughs> the way that the Bible describes it. We, we've come up with all these other things to bring into so-called worship, right? It, 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 we try to entertain or please the crowd rather than honor and please the Father, and that's not worship. Last week, we looked at these Hebrew words for worship, and we tried to pull out of them what we could, what it tells us about uh, how we're to worship and what biblical worship looks like. If you weren't here last week, you might want to listen to the recording and get that. There's some stuff that I think might be helpful. But tonight I want us to look at some of the principles for worship that are laid out through the Bible and in this Westminster Confession that we're studying. And this first principle I want us to see 
that God is the one who regulates his worship. So let's fill in the word regulates. Let's, let's think of the regulative principle in theology, the regulative principle of God. And this stipulates that God is the one who regulates how he's to be worshipped. We can't just worship God however we want. Cain is case in point for that. I remember when I was barely saved. Maybe I wasn't even saved yet. I, I don't know. It was a while back. And my mom was really trying to get me to church. Tell me, hey, you should come to church. You need to go to church. And I didn't want to go. Right? And, and I remember telling her this. You know what? I, I worship God. I connect with God. I just do it at the gym. When I go to the gym and I work out, I talk to God. I feel God's presence. You know, that's how I connect with God. Like, why do I need to go to this building with all these other Christians? I, I, I worship God my own way. I do it on my own terms. Right? But, but I was wrong. You can't just worship God however you want. God's regulative principle says he tells us how we're to worship him. And in Hebrews 10.25, it says, Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. What I thought, what I was doing, was completely wrong. I wasn't worshiping the eternal God. I wasn't worshiping Yahweh. I was worshiping some, some God that I made up myself, is what I was doing. So God is the one who regulates our worship. An example of this principle is in Acts 2.42. We've all heard this verse. It's kind of a classic verse on the early church's worship. It says, they were all they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And the reason I say this is a great example of this regulative principle is because this is the very verse that Pastor Chuck used to come up with the Calvary Chapel distinctives. Now, the Calvary Chapel distinctives are a bunch of distinctives of principles for ministry that Chuck came up with that kind of define what a Calvary Chapel is. Like, hey, if you do these principles, if you apply these in the way that you do ministry, in the way that you worship, you could be in this association called Calvary Chapel. And they're all taken straight from Scripture, but especially this verse in Acts 2.42. So no matter what Calvary Chapel you go to, you're going to find that these four principles, the apostles' teaching, the teaching of the Scriptures, the fellowship, you know, that's why most Calvary Chapels have a time to shake hands and greet each other. The breaking of bread communion is done at least once a month and a time for prayer, a prayer room, and a time for prayer in the service. Those are all going to be a part of the Calvary Chapel services because we believe that it's a part of God's regulative principle and what he wants our worship to look like. You know, when we're thinking about worship, natural revelation is enough to tell us that we need to worship, that we ought to worship, but that's not enough. We need special revelation to tell us how we're to worship, what that worship is to look like. So tonight we're going to look at some of these regulated principles that the scriptures and the confession lay out for us. And the first one I want us to see is there is a God, and he deserves our worship. So put God and worship in the blank. This is kind of obvious, but we've got to start there, right? Worshiping implies that there's something worthy of worship, and that is the one and only created God. Now, the confession says this. It says, the light of the nature showeth there is a God. 
who hath lordship and sovereignty over all, is good and doeth good unto all, and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, served with all heart and with all the soul and with all might. So this is pretty straightforward. It's saying God exists. He's the only one and only God. And so we as his creation need to worship him. This is essentially what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. Starting in verse 20, Paul's going to describe how everybody knows that there's a God. But he's going to say that they, you know there's a God, but you suppress that truth, and you don't give him the worship that he is due. In verse 20 it says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. So they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. They failed to worship him. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish hearts are darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and, and crawling creatures. So Paul says, everyone instinctively knows that there's a God, and that knowledge is universal. The problem is, is people suppress that truth, that knowledge, and don't give God the worship he's due. They exchange the true God for some kind of created thing and worship it instead of the living God. And because of this, God's wrath is dispensed against that individual or that community. And you could go back and read Romans 1 and, and see exactly how that wrath is played out. This the downward spiral of idolatry and, and depravity that comes from it from not giving God the worship that he deserves. That's where it starts. You just stop talking to God. You stop worshiping God. And you start going down this plunge or this slide of depravity. I don't know if you caught it, but it's worth pointing out. There is an exchange that happens in Romans chapter 1. People exchange God for a created thing or an idol, and they worship it. If we really think about it, Everything we do is an act of worship. The question is, who are we worshiping? Am I in obedience worshiping the one and only God? Or am I worshiping some created things? Do my actions show a love and a reverence and a, a trust of God? Or is it showing that I'm really being led by the prince of the power of the air, worshiping demons and Satan? You know, in the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, God begins by stating who he is and then giving some kind of regulative principles or some regulations for how he's to be worshipped. That's what the first four commandments really are. In Exodus 20, starting in verse 2, he says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other God before me. You shall not make for yourself any idol or any likeness of what is in heaven or on the earth beneath or in water under the earth, you shall not worship them or serve them. For I am the Lord your God and a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children to the third and fourth generations to those that hate me. Right? So, so he says, I'm God. I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt. I'm the one who saved you. And here's some 
things about how I want you to worship me. You have no other gods. You're not to create images. You're, you're going to keep the Sabbath day holy. You're not going to use my name in vain. There's principles for how we're going to worship him. Point number two, God has revealed how we are to worship him. So fill in the word revealed. The Westminster Confession of Faith says this, but the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation. Now, our worship really needs to be based on the Bible. The Bible needs to be the center of everything we do as Christians, especially our worship. It's been said that one could only go as high in worship as they go deep in theology. And I think this is 100% true. This is true because you can't worship what you don't know. And it's in the Bible, it's in theology, where we learn who God is, that we're supposed to worship him for, and how we are to worship him. Knowing and obeying the scriptures really is the simplest way that we could worship God. The simplest and the most powerful form of worship is going to be just simply obeying what God says in the Bible, being obedient to the word of God. In fact, to worship contrary to the scriptures is to worship in vain, Jesus says. It, it, it's to offer empty worship, worship that's not going to count for anything or do anything for us. In Mark chapter 7, in verses 6 through 8, Jesus says this. Well, first he, he's talking to some Pharisees, and he's talking about how, you know, that they're taking things that God had commanded and using their traditions to not do them. Specifically, they're saying, hey, this money that I have, it's been, it's Corbin. It's been dedicated to God. I'm using it in worship to God. And because of that, I can't use it to do what God has told me to do in the Fifth Commandment, which is honor my father and mother. Part of that Fifth Commandment is taking care of your parents when they get old. It's the, the child's responsibility to do that. And, and these people were saying, you know, I can't really help my parents. I can't give them the finances that they need because I took this money and I've dedicated it to God. And Jesus says this, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men, neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. So when we don't worship according to the Bible, we're worshiping in vain, Jesus says. Throughout church history, the pulpit has been a really big deal. You'd walk into church, and they would use all kinds of symbolism. For instance, like if you went to a funeral, they would have an open casket, and everybody would have to walk up and walk by it. And they would go through great lengths to show everybody there that everybody's going to die, that you're going to die, that you're going to face death. And, and it would open a door to share the gospel. There was a symbolism in that. We've gotten away from that in our culture. We've made funerals a lot easier on the attendees. But, but that was for it. And in the same way, there was a purpose for having an actual pulpit. You'd walk into a church, and you would look. Everything was centered around the pulpit. And it was easy to see that the pulpit, nation of the Word of God, was at the center of the work of everything that was going to happen in that church. 
It, 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 it's that symbol. And that's why it's so important for me that, that we have a pulpit in here. That's why I was so mad when they sold the pulpit and bought the disco ball. Right? Because it, it, it says a lot. It, you know, the, having a pulpit and preaching from a pulpit shows that you value the Word of God, that you value the proclamation of the Word, that that is above all else, means of God's grace in His church. Spurgeon said this, Breath is the bow, and strong desire fits to the string the arrow that is to be sent upward. No arrow may be shot toward heaven, but that which came down from heaven. Christians take their arrows from God's quiver, and when they shoot them, they shoot them with this on their lips. Do as you have said. Remember your word to your servant, upon which you have caused me to hope. The only arrows Spurgeon says that are going to make it to heaven are the ones that first came down from heaven. You know, so if we're going to worship God, it needs to come from the Bible. Another preacher says this, so the successful prayer is the desire of a holy heart, sanctioned by the promise. True prayers are like those of carrier pigeons that find their way so well. They cannot fail to, fail to go to heaven if it is from heaven that they came. They are only going home. You know, our prayers need to start from heaven. They need to be grounded in God's revelation. These are the prayers that God will receive and God will bless. We just can't worship God however we want. Our worship must be based on God's word, or we aren't worshiping the true God, but we're worshiping a God that we've made up. Right? We see this throughout the Bible, right? We're worshiping the God the wrong way can be extremely devastating. In Numbers chapter 10, Nadab and Abihu, they go in. Now, these are, these are the priests. These are Aaron's sons. They go in to worship God. But the Bible says they offered strange fire. And God struck them dead there on, this, on the spot. Now, we don't know what that strange fire is. I don't think it's a really big thing. I, I, I don't think they went in drunk. I don't, I don't think it was some big thing that they did wrong. They just didn't do it the way that God prescribed it. Rabbi Ezra, Ezra was a priest. His job as a Gershonite was to carry the articles of the, the furnishings of the temple, to carry the Ark of the Covenant when they moved. And when they got the, the back from the Philistines, what did he do? And he's, he's walking by it, and they have it on the cart like the Philistines did. And the ark started to fall off. And all he did was try to stop it from falling on the ground. You'd think that was a good thing. But God smote him dead because he was worshiping the wrong way. That ark didn't belong on a cart, it belonged on his shoulders. And because he did it the wrong way, not only did God not receive his worship, it had a detrimental effect. He was smitten dead. How about Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament? Like they sold their house, and they get half of the money from their house to the church. Most people are like, wow, that's, that's pretty generous. <laughs> that's, that's pretty good. But they did it with a little hypocrisy in there, right? Because they wanted everybody to think that they gave all the money from their house. And what did God do? He smote them dead. You see, our worship can't be even 95% right and 5% wrong. It needs to be regulated by the Word of God. 
You know, our culture doesn't really think the details of worship matter. Our culture, what matters about worship is being sincere and passionate. Right? The, the idea that there's one way to God <laughs> is really repulsive to our culture. Uh, our, our culture, I'm sure you heard this analogy, kind of looks at it like God's on the top of this mountain. And there's many roads to the top. There's many ways that you could get there. Some of them are more direct than others. Some of them are more windy. You know, uh, some of them are harder to rain. But in the end, everybody gets to the top. Everybody ends up in the same place. You know, even when I was living in Jerusalem, probably one of the most religious cities in the world, I experienced this kind of syncretism or pluralism. I had many people I was talking to that were Muslim and, and some Jewish even. They all told me the same thing. I said, hey, you worship Allah. You worship Jesus. I worship Allah. It's the same thing. And we basically worship the same thing. And I'm like, no, we don't worship the same thing. I, I worship the Lord and only true God. I worship the creator and sustainer of the universe. I worship the God that entered his creation, fulfilled the law, and died on the cross to redeem me. You worship a made-up God that doesn't even exist, who's ruining your life. It's not even the same at all. <laughs> but I'd like to say that our cultures are very pluralistic. And again, it's not who you worship that matters, but what matters is that you have enthusiasm and sincerity. Might I remind you that the place in the Bible where they probably are worshiping with amount of enthusiasm is found there in Exodus 30, 32, where, uh, you know, Moses is up on the mountain with God, and Aaron makes a golden calf, and they're worshiping that and having an orgy around it. They were pretty sincere. They were pretty passionate. <laughs> but it was an abomination to God, and God judged them, killed 30,000 of them. So we need more. Than passion. We need more than sincerity. We need to worship God in truth. You know, most people think of the church as a drama. Dr. James Kennedy said that the minister is the chief actor, God is the prompter, and the laity is the critic. What is actually the case is that the congregation is the chief actor, the minister is the prompter, and God is the critic. God is the one who decides whether he's going to receive our worship or not. And it's based on, is it biblical? Is it according to his revelation? Point number three, we are to worship only God. So throw in the word only. The confession says, religious worship is to be given to God, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, and to him alone, not to angels, not to saints, or to any other creature. Someone should tell the papists about that. In Matthew chapter 4, right, we, Jesus is out in the wilderness. He's being tempted of the devil for 40 days, 40 nights. And what does the devil do? He comes to him and he's like, hey, why don't you just bow down and worship me? I have all the kingdoms in the world. I'll give them to you if you'll just bow down and worship me. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says to him, go, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Right? No, there's only one who deserves worship, and that is God. 
And, and, and you know, worship needs to be Trinitarian, right? You, you can't just worship the Father, right? You, we know we need to worship the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I had this talk all the time in Jerusalem with the Jews, right? Oh, we worship Yahweh. We worship the same God. And I would say, no, we don't. We don't worship the same God at all. Because Jesus says this in John 5, 23. So that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. But if you don't have the Son, you don't have the Father. <laughs> you can't worship the Father without worshiping the Son. Right? And it needs to be Trinitarian. You know, nowhere in the Bible do angels allow themselves to be worshipped. Listen to what John says, uh, or what John's told in Revelation when he sees this angel and bows down and starts worshipping it. Revelation 19.10, Then I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said, Don't do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. In Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas are on a mission there in Lystra, and Paul heals this guy. All of a sudden, he realizes this guy who's listening to him preach has faith to be healed. This guy's been lame every lofty day in his life. And Paul speaks to him, the guy rises up, and the guy laughs, and everybody's astonished. And it says they come and they start trying to worship him. They're calling him Zeus and Barnabas, uh, another god, and they're making a big deal about it. And this is what Paul says. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their clothes, they tore their robes, and they rushed into the crowd, crying out. Uh, I cut off that part of the verse. Uh, you should worship God only. We're, we're, we're men just like you. Why are you worshiping us? Is essentially what they said. You know, when we worship an angel or a dead saint or, or even some other person, what we're really doing is we're, we're doing exactly what Paul said there in Romans 1. We're worshiping a creature rather than a creator. There's this preacher named Thomas Beaker, or Beecher, and one day he substituted for his famous brother, Henry Ward Beecher, at the Plymouth Church in Brooklyn, New York. Many curiosity seekers had come to hear the renowned Harry Beecher speak. Therefore, when Thomas Beecher appeared in the pulpit, instead, some people got up and started for the doors. Uh, it's kind of like when somebody preaches for Bob on Wednesday night. People come and they're like, hey, it's not Bob, I'm out of here. Yeah. And, and sensing that they were disappointed because he was substituting for his brother, Thomas raised his hand for silence and announced, all those who came here this morning to worship Henry Ward Beecher may withdraw from the church. All who came to worship God may remain. And I think we do that more often than we want to admit where we see some guy that God's using, and it's good to look up to him. It's good to admire him. It's good to recognize God's working in his life. It's good to learn from him. But we kind of start to, in a sense, worship him and, and, and start to think that he's Jesus. We start treating him like Jesus. And we need to be careful of that. 
Point number four. You are to worship all of God. So fill in the word all. The confession says that we're to worship the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Again, if our worship isn't Trinitarian, we aren't worshiping the God of the Bible. But this isn't just worshiping all three members of the Godhead. It's worshiping all the Godheads. Like we need to worship God for all of his attributes, not just for the ones that we like or the ones that are you know, acceptable in our culture. We need to worship all of God. Or, essentially, we're just creating our own God and worshiping an idol. We see this in our culture a lot. You know, our culture loves to worship the God who is love. God is love. God is forgiving. But the second that you mention God is just and God is holy, it's like, well, I, I, no, not my God. I, my God doesn't do that. So then your God's not the God of the Bible. I saw this meme this week, and it was actually a, a, a quote that uh, John MacArthur <laughs> actually said in one of his sermons or uh, somewhere. But it says, if you say my God is a God of love and doesn't send anyone to hell, well, you're right. Your God doesn't send anyone to hell because he can't. Your God doesn't exist, is what he said. And I've had people come to me and say, you know, I just have a problem. I, I don't know if I could worship this God because my son or daughter died and they never believed. I don't know how I could worship God in heaven knowing that my son or daughter isn't there, knowing that my son or daughter is in hell. And, and that's tough, but my response to them is, one day we'll be in heaven and we'll be praising God for his perfect judgment, even his judgment of your child. We may not understand it now because we see through a glass dimly. But one day when we behold his full glory, we will have no problem worshiping him for his judgment. These things that we think we can't worship him for now, or these things that we think are too difficult, these things that we don't understand, these injustices that we don't like, one day we will bow before God and we will worship him for those very things. Point number five, our approach must be through the shed blood of Christ. So from the word approach. So we got to worship God. We've got to do it in a prescribed way, but we need to come. We need to approach him the right way. The confession says, and since the fall, not without a mediator, nor in the mediation of any other but Christ alone. Adam and Eve, they had it made in the garden. God walked with them in the cool of the day. But since the fall, it's not like that anymore, right? We've been separated from God. And we need a, a mediator. We need a peacemaker to have access to God, to come into his presence, to, to worship him, to be acceptable to him. And I'm sure most of us confess that Jesus is the only way to God, the only way to get saved. I'm sure we all believe that. I'm 100% confident of that. Um, but how mindful of that are we when we come to worship God? And we don't have to do what they do in the New Testament and come through sacrifices and ritual baths and things like that to worship God. Right? We come through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. It's already been done. It's already been paid for. Um, you know, Calvary Chapel is a really laid-back church. 
our, our style of worship is, is really casual. It's really come as you are, right? And that, that, in some ways, that's a, that's a really good thing, right? It, it, people like that. It, you know, it doesn't turn people away. People come, they get saved, they hear the word of God. You know, uh, you could be authentic. You're not having to be somebody you're not. But there's a negative aspect to that as well. One is that we tend to kind of take church lightly. We, I, I think we kind of start to take it for granted. Right? We, we, we lose the awareness that we're walking into God's house and that it's a really big deal. You know, the Old Testament saints, the Old Testament believers, they needed to bring a sacrifice to come before God. Actually, it, it says this in Deuteronomy 16, 16. Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses. This is the regulated principle. At the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Booths. And they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. You had to bring a gift. You had to bring an offering. You had to bring an animal sacrifice. You actually, there was a great cost to coming and worshiping the Lord. Well, there's a great cost for us, too. The problem is, is that cost was paid 2,000 years ago. You know, when I went to USC, I was going to school there, and, and they had this thing where parents could load money into this account that's attached to your, your school ID. And then the students could go, and they could buy food and school supplies and things like that with that money that was loaded onto their, their card. And one of the problems that we had was we would go and we'd start buying stuff and using it. And then all of a sudden we'd be like, wow, we're making money. Like, how did we go through so much money so fast? Like, we had no realization of what the actual cost of this stuff was because the money was loaded on so long ago by our parents. And, you know, we weren't conscious that we were actually spending it. And I think this same thing is true for us in a spiritual sense. Right? I, I really do. We forget the cost of our mediation. We forget that Jesus had to come to this cursed earth and he had to live a perfect life and he had to be convicted as a criminal and be tortured to death and rise from the dead so that we could have this access to God, that we could have this worship available to us. And so we need to be mindful of that. We need to be mindful of the cost. We need to be mindful of what Jesus had to pay so that we had this privilege. So I just ask, do, when we walk into church, do we do it with the awareness that we're coming into church because of the shed blood of Jesus? Does that thought go through our mind that Jesus had to die on the cross to give me access into his Father's house and into his presence? When I start to pray, it, it, am I aware that it's only through the shed blood of my Savior, this prayer makes it my Father in heaven? Do we realize when we're singing praise to God that it's only through the shed blood of Jesus that that worship is acceptable, that he receives our prayer, our praise? When we're serving, are we aware that our, our service doesn't commend us to God in any way? It's just an expression of what Jesus did for us 2,000 years ago. It's a way of saying thank you and that I believe that you did die for me and I'm grateful for it. You know, we really can't think about the gospel too much. We tend to think the gospel is how we get saved, but then we move on to, to deeper truths. We kind of graduate. 
the, the gospel is kind of like elementary school, and then we move on to greater truths. But this couldn't be more wrong. The gospel is the single greatest truth that there is. And we couldn't think about it enough. We can't think about it long enough. And the more that we think about it, the greater our worship is going to be. In 1 Corinthians 15, uh, chapters one, or verses 1 and 2, Paul, in this chapter, is talking all about the resurrection and, and why the resurrection is important. But he says this at the beginning of the chapter. Now I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received and which you also stand, by which you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. But he says, in which you are saved. That word saved, it's a, it's a present tense verb. It, it's literally in which you are being saved. You see, we were initially saved by the gospel. We were initially set apart, positionally sanctified, put in Christ. But we're progressively being saved day by day. We're being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. And the way that we grow in this sanctification, that we progress in this being glorified, so to speak, is through the gospel. That same gospel that saved us is the gospel that's going to sanctify us. And this is why we're to stand in it. This is why we need to hold fast to it. So we can't think about that gospel enough. All our worship needs to be gospel-centered worship because the opposite of that is self-centered worship. And God won't receive self-centered worship. Uh, next point, number six. There are regular forms of worship. We're from the word regular. The, the confession is going to list a bunch of acts that it calls ordinary acts of worship or regular acts of worship. And, and, and it uses ordinary not because worshiping God is, you know, kind of normal. No, it, it's, it's a, you know, it's an extraordinary thing to be able to worship the Creator. It, it, it's called ordinary because these are ways that we worship God on a regular basis. This is things that we do continually or regularly. And the first one is prayer. The first act of worship or form of worship. And it has a lot to say about prayer. The confession says prayer with thanksgiving being one special part of religious worship is by God required of all men and that it may be accepted is to be made in the name of the Son by the help of the Spirit, according to his will, with understanding, reverence, humility, fervency, faith, love, and perseverance, in a vocal and in non-tongue. Prayers can be made for things lawful and for all sorts of men living or that shall live hereafter, but not for the dead, not for those of whom it may be known that they have sinned, the sin unto death. So yeah, there's a lot there about prayer. But for the sake of time, I'll leave it to this. The Westminster Confession says that we are to pray for things that are lawful. Right? We, we need to pray for things that the Bible says are lawful. Right? We, we have no right to pray for something that is against the will of God or against the word of God. We, we have no right to ask God to bless something that the Bible condemns. That, that's blasphemy. That's praying against the will of God. And it says that we're not to pray for those who have sinned, the sin unto death. 
That comes from 1 John 5, 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading him to death, he shall ask, and God will give him, will give life to those who commit the sin, not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make request for this. This is a, a difficult passage. And there's a debate by what John even means here by this sin leading into death. Uh, I don't know. I'm not going to say I know exactly what he was talking about there. Uh, there's a, a few options. One is uh, that it's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit would be the sin leading into death. Another might be that it's the continual rejection of Jesus up until the point of death. But that would kind of take away the purpose of praying for someone that has committed that because they would already be dead and we've already been told not to pray for the dead. But I like to say, I don't really know what that is. But I say this, once judgment of God is clearly marked for someone's life, it would be against God's will to pray their salvation. Yeah, but here, here's another place where I think that the, the Westminster divines got it wrong. And I think that there's a, an example for us here. Because as carefully as they were crafting this confession, and as godly as they are, and as theologically sound as they are, they made a mistake. They aren't perfect. And this should be a warning for us. If in 1 John 5, the apostle says that one should not pray for one who committed the sin unto death, he doesn't say that you can't pray for them. He says that you shouldn't pray for them. You know, the divines also say that prayer should be done in a known tongue when prayed out loud. You know, this isn't a prohibition against tongues. Right. What this is, is uh, you need to remember that this confession was written at the time where the Roman church was a big deal. And what this is condemning is a church service where some minister is praying over the body and doing it in Latin, in a tongue, in a way that nobody in the service could understand what he was saying. It, 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 that does no good. Uh, you put, that's the exact same thing that Paul says that when you have corporate worship and somebody is going to pray in tongues, that there needs to be an interpreter there. Because if you're speaking in something that nobody understands, it's unprofitable for everybody. But there's some other forms of ordinary worship as well. It says that reading of scriptures with godly fear, that's reading the scriptures and obeying them, right? with a godly fear, knowing that this is the word of God. This is the will of God. This is something that I need to obey. James one twenty two, But prove yourselves doers of the word, not merely hearers of the word who delude themselves. And he says the sound preaching, the conscionable hearing of the word, and obedience unto God with understanding, faith, and reverence. You know, preaching the word is an act of worship. I'm sure we would all agree with that. But what about receiving the word? When you guys come to church on Sunday morning or Wednesday night, or even now, the way that you receive the message is an act of worship. You hearing this is, is an act of 
worshiping God? Are, are we listening with attentive ears? Are we doing the best I can to understand it, to remember it, to apply it to my life? It says the singing of psalms. We already covered this, so I'm going to skip it. The sacraments, baptism and communion are expressions of worship. This is one reason why it's so important for believers to get baptized. These are the two ordinances that Jesus gave to his church. He commanded his apostles to go out and preach the gospel and to baptize people who believe in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It was a command. And he also commanded his church to celebrate the Lord's table, to do this in remembrance of me. And I believe that there's something that happens when we do these two ordinances by faith in the spiritual realm that, that strengthens us, that, that builds us up in a way that doesn't happen anywhere else. So these are ordinances that we do out of worship in the way that God told us to. You know, when we look at Acts 2.42, that classic verse on worship in the early church, and the description of the spirit-filled believer, we see all these elements of worship present. In Acts 2.42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to preaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to communion, and to prayer. And then the description of the spirit-filled believer in Ephesians 5, 18-21. Do not get drunk with wine, for that's dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, healing spiritual songs, singing, making melody to, in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. You see, so all these ordinary forms of worship should be a part of our daily walk with Jesus, not special once-in-a-while events. These are things that we should be doing on a regular basis. Next point, number seven, there are special forms of worship. And the confession goes on to say, besides religious oaths and vows, solemn fastings, thanksgivings upon special occasions, which are in several times and seasons to be used in holy and religious manner. These things could be a, a form of biblical worship. They're just not a part of our everyday worship. They're special occasions that call for them. You know, there's times where we might want to fast or that fasting might be appropriate. You know, maybe we're seeking the Lord's will. Maybe we're just dedicating time to seeking the Lord, spending with the Lord, drawing near to Him. These will be times where fasting is appropriate. But we don't fast every single day for obvious reasons, right? I mean, if we fasted every single day, we probably wouldn't be very healthy. We also need to be not turn fasting into some kind of whole thing. That was what was happening in Jesus' day. They would fast on Mondays and Thursdays. Remember the Pharisee? I fast twice a week. And it's doing it as this kind of self-righteous religious act, just doing it out of ritual instead of doing it as a special occasion to honor and worship the Lord. As far as oaths and vows, this has a whole other section in the confession, and we'll get to that in the future. 
but there's ways that we could worship God that are special, that we don't do on a regular basis is the point. Number eight, we are to worship always, everywhere, especially in church. The divine saying, neither prayer nor any other part of religious worship is now under the gospel either tied unto or made more acceptable by any place in which it is performed or towards which it is directed. But God may be worshipped everywhere in spirit and in truth, as in private families, daily and secret, each one by himself, or more solemnly in the public assemblies, which are not carelessly or willfully to be neglected or forsaken, when God by his word or providence calleth there unto it. Back to John chapter 4, this woman said, Hey, you guys worship in Jerusalem, we worship in Gerizim, which one's the right place? And Jesus says that there's a day coming where you'll neither worship on this mountain nor in that mountain, but you'll worship God in spirit and in truth. You can worship God where everywhere, anywhere. You know, you don't need to point towards Jerusalem or Mecca or anywhere. God is everywhere. He's omnipresent, and we should worship him all the time. You know, if you go to Israel and you go look at the, the wailing wall and just stand there for a while, you'll see something. The, the Jews, they'll go up there and they'll pray at the wall, but then they'll walk away from it backwards. You know, they'll back because they don't want to turn their back on the idea. Which really doesn't make a lot of sense. They got Psalm 139, which tells them that God is everywhere. <laughs> it's literally impossible to turn your back on God, right? But they believe that God's presence is more present there in the Holy of Holies. Or the Arabs, see them. They'll pull up in that the five times a day when the Muslim call to prayer comes out. And they'll lay down facing east, facing Mecca, and they'll do their prayer. We don't need to do that. Jesus made it so we could worship him in spirit and truth wherever we are. Malachi 1.11 says, From the rising sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense is going to be offered to my name, and a grain offering that is pure, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. First Timothy 2.8, Therefore I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. We're to pray everywhere is the idea. Uh, Richard Wilson said this. He says, I was in a barber shop when I became aware that a personality had entered the room. A man had come quietly in upon the same errand as myself and sat in the chair next to me. Every word that he uttered showed a personal and vital interest in the man who was shaving him. And before I got through, I was aware that I had attended an evangelistic service because Mr. Moody was in the next chair. I purposely lingered in the room after he left and noticed the singular effect his visit had upon the barbers in that shop. They did not know his name, but they knew that something had elevated their thoughts. And I felt that I had left the place as I should have left a place of worship. He said we should be able to worship God in the barbershop. 
we should live and we should worship in a way that when we leave somewhere, we leave to some secular place, there's an awareness that someone in here was worshiping God, <laughs> right? That, that I was in God's presence because of, well, us. And we're supposed to specifically, especially worship in church. Hebrews 10.25, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more, as you see the day. Number nine, true worship is Sabbath worship. Now, I don't like the way that the Westminster divines express this. I, I read through it a few times, and the more I read it, I, it started to make a little bit more sense. Uh, I actually called one of my friends, who's a Presbyterian pastor, and talked to him about it, uh, kind of try to get their view on the Sabbath and try to reconcile it to ours. But I, I disagree that the Sabbath is moved from Saturday to Sunday during the church. We, we, we don't have a Christian Sabbath day. That, that, that's not true, right? The Sabbath is... Shabbat, it's the last day of the week. It always is. And it was specifically given to the Jewish people. Now they say that the Sabbath wasn't a legal principle. It wasn't given by Moses, but it was given to God as a creative principle. It was through creation that the Sabbath came. And so the Sabbath is binding on everybody, not just the Jewish people kind of Presbyterian view is, is that you're still required to have some type of Sabbath. It doesn't need to be on Shabbat, the sixth day of the week. You just need to celebrate it one day. And we celebrate the Lord's Day, and so that kind of became the Sabbath. I disagree with that. I don't think the Sabbath is a day. I think the Sabbath is a person, and that person is Jesus. In Hebrews 4, verses 8 through 11, it says, For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest, so that no one will fall through following the example, or the same example of disobedience. So the one who enters this rest, rests from his works as God rested from his. So the way that we celebrate the Sabbath is resting from works that are trying to please God. We are no longer trying to please God by or receive God's acceptance through what we're doing. We say we can't do that. It's impossible to do enough good deeds to reconcile us to God. We rest in Jesus' good work, the one and only good work. We rest in that person, and that is our Sabbath. I will say this, though. I think it would be wise to take some of the principles of the Sabbath and apply them to our walks. I think it would be wise to Take a day and, you know, rest and dedicate it to doing things that are worshiping to God, to thinking about God and that are, you know, God's activities. And 
you know, stop worrying about the, the things of this world for a day. Did you know the Sabbath was a sign of faith? It really was. It was a sign that people believed they had faith that God would provide. You know, in the ancient world, people would work every day. They took no days off. You had to prepare food. And so to work six days, it was like, well, how are we going to have food for the seventh day? How are we going to survive? Who's going to protect us? Who's going to, you know, do this and that? And God's saying, hey, just have faith. Do it for six days and stop for one day and have faith that I will take care of it. I was thinking about this, and, and I was reminded of an American football player named Derek Carr. He's a quarterback. And I read this article about him a while back. About He was talking about growing up and having really, really uh, kind of fundamentalist Christian parents. And he was obviously a great athlete. You know, he played quarterback in the NFL. Uh, but growing up, he, he played all kinds of sports, and he was always the best guy on every team, and he was always traveling teams, and there was tournaments every weekend. And it, it was kind of a problem for him because his parents refused to let him play any type of sport on Sunday. Nothing. You know, you were going to go to church, you were going to spend time with family, but no sports on Sunday. Well, when you're on traveling teams, you're, you're traveling around, you're doing tournaments on the weekend, like, the most important days are on Sunday. The last day of the weekend. He couldn't play. And so it was embarrassing for him. He had to deal with his coaches constantly nagging him and things like that. Needless to say, it worked out. He made it to the NFL. You know, he's had a career. He's made all kinds of money. God took care of it. God, God provided. Right? He, he didn't need to play that extra day. God blessed him in the effort that he gave. Do we have the faith to dedicate time for a day to God and just trust God will work out a way for us to get done everything that we need to do the rest of the week? Have faith to apply a Sabbath to our schedule? That's really the question. God's faithfulness isn't a question to me. God's going to be faithful. He can't deny himself. The question is, is our faithfulness? Will we practice it? Point number 10, worship is witness. Don't the word witness. Our worship really becomes our witness. People see how valuable Christ is long before they hear us say anything about Christ or before we present the gospel to them. They really do. In Acts 16, Paul and Silas, they're in jail. Right? They've been arrested. They've been beaten. They've been thrown into the stocks. And they're in jail. And in verse 25, it says that Paul and Silas are praying and singing hymns of praise to God. They're worshiping God. And guess what? The Bible says that the other prisoners, the other people in the jail, are listening. They're, they're observing Paul and Silas worshiping. And, and think about this. When the earthquake loosed the bonds and opened the jail cells, why didn't all the other prisoners run away like any other prisoner would do? Go down to the Orange County Jail and open all the jail doors and just watch everybody flee. They didn't do that. They stayed right where they were. Why? Why didn't they act like any other prisoner? Because they wanted to hear about the God that Paul and Silas were worshiping just as much as the jailer did. Because of the way that Paul and Silas were worshiping God through the night. 
You know, when I was sick and I was having surgery after surgery, God really started to work powerfully in my life. And I began to recognize this. I began to recognize his working. And, and I was worshiping. I was just in awe. And I was, you know, every day just worshiping God throughout the whole day and, and just, you know, in awe that he could, you know, take what I was going through and use it in such mighty ways. And the further that we got from those days, the further that we got, you know, uh, from when I was sick, I started to hear more and more stories about how my worshiping God through this painful and difficult time was a witness to those around me. It, it really was. I remember about six months after I lost my arm, I was getting on this bus in Orange County, uh, right on State College, and this young man, let's say probably about 18 years old, he walks up to me, and he's like, hey, hey, he's all excited, and he's running at me, you're Joe McGuire. And I'm like, what does this guy want? Like, you're not here to serve me papers or something. <laughs> you know, my thought. And, and he's all excited. He's like, hey, 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 no, no, no. He's like, you're Joe McGuire. He's like, you don't know me. And I'm like, no kidding. <laughs> and then he goes, hey, my mom worked at the hospital that you were in. She worked at a placential Linda hospital. And, and then he tells me, you know what? She died a year ago. When, when the story happened from cancer. But the last two years that she was alive, all she could talk about was you. I'm like, what? You know? And, and he goes, she said that you had the most horrible circumstances and you were suffering so greatly, yet you had this peace and you were worshiping God through it. And she said, if you could do that, I could do that too. And because of that, she got saved. And because of that, I got saved. And I'm just blown away. I didn't even know that this lady existed. I don't know what she looks like. I don't remember talking to her. I don't really remember anything about it. But her and her son got saved because of the way I was worshiping God through this tough time. My worship while suffering preach louder than any preacher from any pulpit on any place in the planet could have preached to her. You see, God has a way of using our worship as, our, as his witness. In the book of Acts, in chapter 2, remember, the 120, they're up in the upper room, and they're, they're worshiping. They're having a worship service. They're praying. They're seeking the Lord. And they start speaking in tongues, right? And, and this giant crowd that's coming into Jerusalem to the feast to, to come and uh, celebrate Pentecost, they notice this worship of this 120. And they stop. And because of that, Peter's able to preach the gospel to them. And 3,000 of them got saved that very day. That was their worship that provided the opportunity for Peter's preaching. In Acts 1.8, it says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the remotest parts of the world. Jesus says, You shall be my witnesses. I used to think that meant that every single one of us was called to go out and do street evangelism and go out and preach the gospel to people on the street. I don't really think that anymore. <laughs> The idea is, is that we go through our day worshiping God. Wherever God's providence takes us, we'll naturally be a witness to those around us. 
You see, our worship throughout the day is our witness. Maybe, just maybe our evangelism is so hard today because we do so little worship. We've lost the urgency to live a life of worship. We think worship is something that's done on Sunday mornings in the church building. And that's hidden from the heathen sight. They never get to see us worship. And so how are we going to be able to share the gospel with them? Our worship and our witness need to go together. I'll end with this. You know, all creation, everything that's created, responds to God's word, to God's command in worship and obedience. It's true. It really does. So Psalm 19 is about the heavens declare your glory. You know, everything worships you, God. But it's when you get to the human being, the one thing that's created in God's image, does he have the audacity to turn around and say no? To the Creator. I'm not going to worship you. I'm not going to obey you. I'm going to do my own thing. Let's not let that be us. Let's be the ones that worship God in spirit and truth. Let's follow the example of Paul and Silas there and Adelpho worshiping God in the middle of the night. And I guarantee you, if we do, we're going to see miracles like they did. We're going to see God working in ways that will blow our mind, like in Pentecost when the 3,000 souls got saved that Peter's preaching. But it starts with us making a decision. Hey, I'm going to be a worshiper. I'm going to be in this book, and I'm going to apply it to my life. I'm going to be obedient to it, and I'm going to live a life to please the Father. Amen? So, Father, we do thank you. We thank you that we have the privilege to be your worshiper, Lord. I pray that you would teach us how to do that. I pray we would grow in our ability to worship you and uh, to show this world who you are, God. I thank you that you've given us a worship manual. You've given us your Bible, Lord. I pray that you give us a hunger for that word. I pray that we would hunger and thirst for righteousness, Lord. I pray that your word would change us, Lord, from one degree of glory to the next as we behold you and become more like you. And then our worship will become greater in, this, in your sight and in the world's, Lord. So I thank you for tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right.